0: All right. Um, so tonight, as I said, this is going to be the last one of the year uh, that we're going through, and we're going to kind of, if I may say, end it with a bang. Uh, We at least are going to make it to Josiah, who is um, a notable king. This won't be the last Wednesday night on Josiah. We'll we'll spend a couple more, probably at least a couple more, on Josiah um, before we're done. And then after Josiah, during the period of Josiah, there's at least four prophets that we've got to consider uh, on the backside of that. So uh, that being said, we're, I want to take just a minute to kind of review what we talked about last week and then help us to think about how we understand what's happening in Israel's history right now. Um, remember, um, the northern kingdom has been hauled off to it by the Assyrians and they're in captivity. So they're gone and we won't see them for a while. Um, And so what we're left with is just the kingdom of Judah or the southern kingdom. They're pretty much the only ones that are left. And we saw the reign of Hezekiah, who is over the southern kingdom. And he kind of sees that transition where he becomes kind of the only king uh, left. And the assessment of Hezekiah is, on the whole, pretty favorable. But with a lot of these kings, we get sort of a favorable report. And then it's kind of a mixed bag if there is anything favorable about them. Normally, it's kind of a mixed bag. And that's what we get, obviously, with Hezekiah. And the big problem with Hezekiah, one is that he got too proud, and God gave him, a, a, you know, basically a, a death-bringing uh, illness. And um, and prayer and, and several things the Lord told, tells him, okay, you know, I'm going to give you healing. And after he comes out of his illness he then starts to get proud again and opens up the temple treasury and shows the Babylonians all the treasury in his temple and we talked about last week why he might do that because right now and this is really important for tonight you have to kind of think about this out in the east you're always dealing with enemies you're always dealing with kingdoms and nations that are bigger and badder than you are and out in the east you've got the Assyrians that are big and bad at this moment and Pretty much whoever the top dog is, all the other underlings are going to kind of band together to try to take down the top dog. That's just the way the world has always worked, obviously. And so the Assyrians are at the top, and so everybody's kind of banding together. Well, Judah is no different. The problem is Judah is supposed to be led by the Lord. And when they start banding together with other nations, that becomes a real problem between them and the Lord. And so Hezekiah is showing the Babylonians who really want some freedom and independence from Assyria. We're going to look at a map in a minute, and you'll see how close they are together. But the Babylonians are wanting some independence from Assyria, and so they come over to kind of, uh, you know, schmooze with Hezekiah and give him a gift and say, Oh, we heard you are sick, and, and we wanted to bring you some things and, and tell you how much we love you and care for you. And Hezekiah it, takes it as an opportunity to kind of say, Hey, you know, we, could, we can probably build some sort of partnership that seems to be what's going on. And so he shows them all the money that he's got. I've got more than enough money to, to get, you know, away from these Assyrians. And when the prophet Isaiah finds out about this, he says, look, the Babylonians are going to be the ones that come into this place and haul it off bit by bit. So we know now already from Isaiah 38 and 39, we know from 2 se- Kings, that it, it's not, for the southern kingdom, the problem is not Assyria. The problem is Babylon. And so they're in our minds. They're on our radar. We know that they're in the distance. They're, they're the ones that we need to really be concerned about. And so... Hezekiah does this, and it brings about the wrath of the Lord. But Hezekiah then comes back on the backside and repents of that, and asks, asks for forgiveness. And um, and that's obviously where we learn that the, the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans, same group of people, Babylonians, Chaldeans, same group, uh, are going to be the ones that are going to return to Jerusalem and haul it off. And then we get, um, we get Manasseh coming in, and there's a Kind of symbolizes the big decline that's about to happen, it's about to take place in Judah, is right here in Manasseh. And Manasseh brings in all these Canaanite practices, brings back all the cults that existed before, and begins to uh, participate in all kinds of awful things. In fact, even to the point where he is sacrificing his own sons. And it's, a, it's an incredible scene where he takes his son into the Valley of Hinnom and actually uh, sacrifices him there, which was a common practice uh, back in the day. Did I do something wrong? Oh, it doesn't match? That may have been my fault. I'm not sure. Did any of them match? None of the reviews matched. Oh. Well, that's a problem. Uh, we'll look at your sheet for now and then... Uh, we'll get the thing up in just a second. I airdropped it. I don't know if I don't know where that, that ends up. I can airdrop it again if you want me to. Give me one second. We're dealing with technical difficulties. You got it? Okay. Alright, we're good to go then. Um, where are we at? Yeah, there we go. Okay, good. So the decline of Judah is seen in the, the in person of Hezekiah. He, he brings back all these Canaanite practices, all the cults, and he instills even the practice of, of, of human sacrifice right there in the Valley of Hinnom. And we, we talked about last week, uh, if you're looking at an aerial view of, of the land of Israel, there's two valleys that kind of go surround basically the Temple Mount, if you can picture it. Um, and one of them is the Valley of Hinnom, and, and it's typically where the a, after this scene, where the Jews began to just burn their trash, and it was kind of seen as a, a Uh, a place of ill repute, and so it's not someone where it wasn't prime real estate anymore where people wanted to live, and so they just kind of commenced to burning their trash, and that that becomes kind of a a model for hell in the New Testament, for Jesus kind of depicting what is the alternative. Uh, The eternal place of torment is much like the valley of Hinnom, and so it takes on the term. In fact, the word in the New Testament literally is Gehenna, which is the Valley of Hinnom. That becomes the term that we use for hell, essentially. And so you see this decline beginning, but Manasseh, remember, he gets immediately dealt with. So he he leads the nation into this terrible idolatry, and then he gets near immediately dealt with by the Lord, and he's hauled off into captivity in prison. And it's only there that he has sort of a, a... uh, prison conversion, as it were, repents, and the Lord lets him come back and restores him to his throne in Israel. And there he begins to enact some reform in the nation before he eventually dies. Well, one of the things that I, I think we want to see, it, it, it's sort of difficult, I think, as we go through, especially at the speed that we're going through in the, the Old Testament, there's not a chance that you're going to remember every detail of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. There's things that come up all the time in this that I'm like, "Wait, wait a minute. I I remember that who which king was that?" and you flip back and you have to kind of do. My hope is really that this the second time you read through 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, your memory is jogged a little bit faster the third time it becomes a little bit more familiar and things like that. And you always have a podcast that you can go back to and kind of listen to along with your reading. But one of the the biggest things that I want you to see out of all of this is that the history that we're reading about doesn't just happen. And the Bible's not actually trying to get you to just read the Bible and understand the history. It's wanting you to see that God rules the history. That all of the things that are happening in the text in front of you are happening as a result of God's hand bringing them about. Because what we see by the time we get to the end of the New Testament is that all of this was bringing about Christ's kingdom eternally. That the, the, God rules history and He's bringing about its consummation, the consummation of history in Christ. So that the end point of all of this has Christ on the throne and His people gathered around it, right? Right? And so, if all of that's happening, then you're going to see pieces move and things turn and, and go one way or the other. This morning in our, our uh, morning devotional with, the, with, our, with our family, we're kind of preparing for Advent. And the text this morning was, on, uh, was in Luke 2, 1-5. And it's a story you're very familiar with, uh, while Quirinius was governor... Uh, Caesar, Augustus, decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to count my people. Now, what we brought up this morning, or what I brought up this morning, was, did Caesar Augustus, just sitting there on his throne, decide, you know what? I want to count my people. Well, it just so happened that there was a peasant family uh, that was engaged to be married somewhere in Nazareth, um, where she was pregnant with the Christ child who was to be born in Bethlehem, which is a long walk from Nazareth. And that counting that that Caesar Augustus just decided to do caused Mary and Joseph to have to travel all the way down to Bethlehem where he would be born, which fulfilled Micah 5 two, right? That from you, O Bethlehem, small among Judah, a ruler will come, uh, the Ancient of Days. And so, we see that that passage, long foretold in the Old Testament, came to fulfillment in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Why? Because some heathen somewhere in Rome decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to count all my people. And so, what you're seeing in Scripture play out is what God said was going to happen. And I think if you're paying attention, we'll see that potentially tonight though it does seem to be weird sometimes how it comes about, doesn't it? Um, Manasseh dies after this kind of period of repentance and brief reform, and Amon, his son, takes over. And Amon only rules for two years. He's only going to be on the, on the throne for two years. But he seems not to have taken his father's advice or heeded any lessons that his father learned, and he certainly doesn't enact any pattern of repentance or continue his, his dad's reforms. In fact, uh, he goes back to the paganism that his dad had participated in early on. I don't know if those were Amon's formative years that Manasseh was in that or, or, or what, or maybe he was just rebelling against his dad. I'm not sure. But he, for whatever reason, began to enact all of those same pagan characteristics that his dad did. Look at 2 Kings 21, 19-26. Amon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was and the daughter of Haruz of Jotbah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in all the way in which his father had walked, and served the idols that his father served, and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him, and put the king to death in his house. But the, pe- but the people of the land struck down all who had conspired against King Ammon, and the people of the, the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in his tomb in the the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah his son reigned in his place. And you also see in 2 Chronicles 33, starting in verse 21, he reigned for 22 years, and the the author of Chronicles actually makes a, a, a little concession to Manasseh. He says in verse 23, in the middle of it, and he did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh's father had humbled himself. But this Amon incurred guilt more and more, and his servants conspired against him and put him to death. So you can see that there, there's this. Uh, the kings of the south are being dealt with in a pretty swift manner, where we've seen throughout this, this whole study that there's times where the, the nation of Israel goes through a long period of idolatry that the Lord just lets it sit. And yet here, toward the end of their tenure in the in the kingdom of Judah, the Lord seems to be dealing with them in pretty rapid succession and getting rid of some of these kings. And in fact, uh, I think that's the way we're supposed to understand Amon dying so quickly by this insurgent. Yet, there's some discouragement to it too. You would think if a king is leading away the nation into idolatry and a group of insurgents come up and kill him, that's a good thing, right? I mean... Aren't we seeing that like, there's people in the nation that are actually sensitive to that and they understand that Manasseh led us to repent from all of those things and we, we, we don't want to go the direction that you're going and so they lashed out and killed him. But then what happens shortly after that? Well, there's a counterinsurgency um, that rises up and so he reigns for two years and uh, filled the land with idolatry again even though in just those short two years, he's murdered by his servants, but then right after that, there's a counter-revolution that comes up and puts him to death. And what do they do? They put King Josiah in in his place. This turns out to be one of the best things for the nation of Israel. But I think if we're reading his history, theologically rather than historically, what we're going to see is that This is the Lord's doing, and there's a particular reason why. What nation are we looking out for? What nation's on the horizon going to do some evil things? Babylon. Babylon is not ready yet. Assyria is still top dog. Now, they're on the decline, but they're still the top dog. And so we know that Babylon's not quite ready yet. Well, it seems as though if Judah keeps going the direction that it's going, the Lord's going to just take care of him. And so what he does is prolong the nation of Judah's sin and idolatry with Josiah as king. Now that's if we read history theologically, which honestly, I think we should do more of. We should probably see God's hand at work throughout historical events. That doesn't just mean as we open our history book, that even means our own life. Do we not do this from time to time where we get to the the end of certain events and we take a look back and we go, wait a second, I can actually see some things that God was doing along the way. And that includes times of great tragedy, doesn't it? It, it, It's it's a shame, I think, sometimes when tragedy happens to a Christian and they're in the middle of it especially and they they feel as though the world is collapsing. I think we all do that. We're all prone to do that. But it's even more of a shame when we get on the backside of tragedy and we think, man, I hope I never have to go through that again. And we never go back and take inventory of all the things that God was potentially doing in that. You and may, you may find out one of those things out of the 10 billion different things that he was doing. You may never know the whatever. You may never know all of those. You may only find out one, maybe two things that was going on in your life at the time that God was actually producing in you. But it's worth it to go back and take inventory. And I think it it is beneficial for the Christian to read history theologically. And so if we're doing that, then what we're seeing is Babylon is not ready. We know they're the ones that are going to come in and lay waste to Judah. And there's some prolonging that takes place. God is clearly dealing with Judah in rapid succession. He's taking out these kings. Why is he doing it? It's prolonging the judgment that is inevitable, uh, that is inevitably coming. So, what we see here is that there's a, a, a shift when Josiah takes the throne. Now, how old is Josiah when he, he takes the throne? He's he's very young. Yeah, I think he's eight years old when he become when he begins to reign. So he's a he's a young kid. Now you got to think. So that, so let's get this straight for just a second. Amon is wicked. He's dealt with in two years by uh, uh, insurgents that takes him out, kills him. The counter-insurgents then kills the insurgent, puts them to death, and they put the eight-year-old Josiah on the throne in his place. Now, if, we, if, if we're thinking about that, David's line is going to be on the throne. That's Josiah. Now, this counter-resurgence this group of people that are kind of counter-revolutionaries, that are doing away with the revolutionaries, they're probably wanting to instill the same practices that Amon put in place, right? If, if we're tr- putting the pieces together correctly. So what do you think their incentive is to put an eight-year-old boy on the throne? Hey, here's a puppet. Yeah, that's right. Here's a, we can play marionette here, and we can direct the kingdom the way we want. Boy, does it not turn out like they thought, if that's indeed what they were thinking. all right. So there's also a shift that's going to take place out east. So remember, Assyria is is in charge, for the most part, out east. But all the nations are trying to get out from under their throne. So it's shifting radically outside. In fact, they own so many provinces that they can't keep track of all of them. So Babylon out east is starting to rear their head. Persia is starting to rear its head. Egypt is starting to rear its head. And they can't keep track of all these places. And so they try to put these little puppet uh, kings on the throne out in these different places. And it just doesn't turn out so well because the people are beginning to kind of revolt. And so it's shifting radically. The Medes and Persians are out there in the east, and they're kicking up a fuss. Now, what is the significance of the Persians? Does anybody know? You heard the Persians? Bob, I know you know. What, what's the significance of the Persians? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they, have, they have moved to the University of Alabama. But besides that, what's the significance of the Persians back in this day? Yeah, King Cyrus is coming. So, again, reading history, theologically, we see the Babylonians are next. They're they're kind of stirring up. They're going to come in and take care of Judah. The Persians are coming up on the backside of them. They're going to go take care of the Babylonians. Now, what is the significance of the Persians taking care of the Babylonians? There's a group that's going to be in prison in Babylon that the Persians are going to set free. Right? So, you, you can already see, again, reading history, theologically, you're seeing the Babylonians come up to take care of the Jews. The Persians are already on the horizon ready to actually give the Jews their land back. You see that? These are not just random coincidences that are taking place. God is moving these things. Uh, uh, is it Proverbs 24, 1? The heart of the king is like water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wishes. Yeah, wherever he will. Sagan? 21-1. I should have remembered. I read it this morning and couldn't remember. Um, so, yeah, Proverbs 21-1. The heart of the king is water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he will. So these kingdoms are rising up, not out of coincidence. Now, if we're looking at a map, you can kind of see where all of these places are. Remember the Fertile Crescent, the most important Um, portion of uh, the ancient Near East. Babylon is over here. Uh, The Medes and the Persians are over here. They're going to form a united kingdom come in and take care of Babylon. But before they do, Babylon's going to go take care of Assyria. And so Assyria basically owns all these provinces out here underneath them. They're also trying to reach into Egypt and take care of Egypt. And Egypt's not having much of it either. And so Assyria is meeting its demise mainly because they've got their hands in too many pots, right? Um, and, and so, um, obviously most dramatic of all is Babylon, is the Babylonian Empire is starting to build its foundation, and a lot of the partnerships that they've tried to establish, are na- they're now starting to utilize so that they can gain some independence from Assyria. That makes sense seeing this yeah. um, so Josiah takes the throne, and part of the reason why Josiah is such a a, a a bad deal if you really wanted to carry on the policies of his dad is because Josiah's heart is built on reformation um, as early as his eighth year, so he's he you count it right, I guess 16 years old, in 632, he uh, turned his heart to the things of God, and be, beginning at the age of 20, begins a purge of every vestige of paganism. Now, as of this moment, he has not yet begun reform of the temple. So he has some sort of inclination toward the Lord already, and begins to create this dramatic reform in the land. But listen to what he does. Look at Second um, Chronicles 34, verses 3-7. to 7. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father, and in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. The asherim and the carved and the metal images, and they chopped down the altars of the baals and in, in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them, and he broke in pieces the asherim and the carved and metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priest on the altars and cleaned Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now, what is the significance of him going through the land and making reform like that. It says he went as far north as the land of Naphtali. Now, if you think about this, the land of Naphtali, we're going to, uh, so to Naphtali, I'm going to go to the next slide. I'll, you'll see it up here. The land of Naphtali, if you can't see it in the back, uh, is all the way up here at the top. This is the Sea of Galilee right here. This is the Dead Sea. All right? This is Jerusalem right down here where he is. He goes he, from, from here all the way up to Naphtali. Um, he takes care of business. And not only does he take care of business. He actually goes to the extent of digging up the bones of the priests who led the nation in idolatry and wickedness. Digs up their bones, places them on top of the altars and burns their bones on top of the altars. Then he grinds the altars and the poles into dust and sprinkles them on the graves. What does that tell you? Just as a reader, what does it tell you? You tell me. What, is it, what does it say? A bold statement, yeah. It, it's a bold statement, for sure. And, and, and it tells you that he's going through everywhere from north to south, and everything in between. Now, I want you to notice that the southern kingdom stops right here. Forgive my hand, the laser pointer, for shaking. My, I've had a lot of coffee today. Uh, <laughs> nothing's wrong with it. I'm just saying it causes the laser pointer to dance. <laughs> so here's the border. Where is he spending a lot of his time? In the northern kingdom. Why do you think he's doing that? See, remember a while back, we said that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, there was a period where they had a really close relationship. Where they were starting to name their king, the southern kingdom was starting to name its kings after the northern kingdom. And they were starting to have a, 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 a bond together, and they kind of wanted to emulate one another. And there's even a time where Jehu is pronounced king of the north, and he's a general, and he comes in, and uh, I think it's Amaziah is the king at the time, or Ahaziah is the king at the time and uh, of the south, and he comes in, and both the king of the north and the king of the south are in the same place together, and he kills both of them right there on the spot. He didn't necessarily intend to kill the king of the south, but hey, he was there, and You know, they were sort of, uh, they had affinity for one another, and he just decided to take care of both of them at the same time. And then he goes and takes care of Jezebel, and he's running through the whole land. There's a period of time where they begin to influence each other so much, and the idolatry of the north was seeping into the south, and the south wanted to be just like the north. And so Josiah, in his reforms, doesn't see it as good enough to just merely go through the south and take care of what's at home, though he does do that. He wants to go all the way into the north and take care of every memory of idolatry in the land. Making a strong statement of the kind of reformation that he wants to enact. Now, of particular interest are the destructions of the altars in the the high places at Bethel and burning the bones of the priest that he uh, officiated there a long time ago in the days of Jeroboam 1. In fact... All of this was actually prophesied as far back as 1 Kings chapter 13. I want you to take a look at this. Um, look how, first of all, the author of 2 Kings 23, 15-20. This is on page 4 of 6 there. This, you know He goes through the altars and things like this. And um, as Josiah turned, this is verse 16, as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord, that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is is that monument I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar of Bethel. So you, you may think to yourself, I don't really remember that. That's why a Bible with good cross references is really handy, because it will direct you to First Kings, chapter 13, which is the passage just below that. First Kings 13, one to two. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam this is remember the original king of the North. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. So, what is the point? Obviously, the, the author of 2 Kings, probably the same author as the author of 1 Kings, wants you to remember there was a prophecy a while back in 1 Kings 13. He also wants you to be clear, Josiah was not aware of that prophecy. What does he do? He says, he burns all the priest's bones on the altar, and then he says, hey, what is that monument over there? Do we need to take care of it too? And the men say, no, 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 no. That that over there is the guy who prophesied that what you just did was going to happen. And so Josiah goes... Okay, we'll leave that alone. He's good. <laughs> so um, He says that in verse 18 of the previous passage there. He said, and he said, let him be. Let no man move his bones. And so they let his bones alone. So he, he goes through and he pulls up all the bones of everybody except for the man of God who came from Judah that told what he was about to do, that he was going to take care of this and burn it to the ground. And so um, Josiah is going through and he is wrecking shop. And he is destroying every vestige of idolatry that ever existed in the land. Why? If it's true that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it where he wishes, why is Josiah's heart bent towards the Lord? That's the Lord's doing. They're about to go into exile. In fact, Josiah is gonna die in 609, by 587. You'll do the math. That's not that many years. I'm not going to do it right off the top of my head because I'd be embarrassed about how poorly I and slowly I do math. But not that many years from Josiah's death, they're going to go into Babylon. Josiah's reformation of the land is delaying the inevitable. In fact, he's going to be told as much in just a little bit. Delaying the inevitable. But no doubt, this is God's doing. And as much as I want to say, that's Josiah making a point, to all the people in Israel, I think if we're reading history theologically, we would have to say, God making a point to the nation of Israel. This is exactly why you're in captivity. This is exactly why you're about to go into captivity. Is because of your wickedness and your idolatry. All right. So then... Oh, let's... uh, This is Bethel. So... Remember, he gives you the top point, Nephtali, and then he gives you Bethel here. Which remember, Bethel is the place where uh, Jeroboam had initially set up that altar in the south to keep people from going to the temple. Um, All right. So, in the process of removing all the idolatry, there is another side of this. It's not good enough to just go through the land and remove all the vestiges of wickedness. Worship of the Lord has to actually be taken care of. Now, what have the people of, quote-unquote, the people of God been doing to the temple? Well, the king is responsible direct, for directing the temple treasury to then take care of what, what the temple needs, to take care of the repairs of the temple and all those kinds of things. And instead of doing that, Hezekiah is opening the treasury to Babylon and showing them all they've got. And we talked about a couple of weeks ago, That's not Hezekiah's to mess with. That's the Lord's. And so instead of taking care of the temple and doing the things that they should be doing with the money, instead they've opened it up to Babylon or to any other uh, community and sought to use it however they saw fit. And so, um, because of that, the the temple had gone into disrepair. And so Josiah wants to lead the nation not only away from idolatry, but actually back to Yahweh. Because you can't actually go away from idolatry if you don't go back to Yahweh. And so he starts to direct them to repair the temple since it had been degraded. Look at Second Kings 22, 3-7. In the 18th year of King Josiah, uh, the king sent uh, Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshullam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hil- uh, Hilkiah, the high priest that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from, from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give, give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house. That is, to the carpenters, to the builders, and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hands, for they deal honestly. Remember, again, a Bible with cross-references will help you back in the days of Joash in the southern kingdom in 2 Kings 12:15 this same statement is given back then when they're doing reform and the people are, are, are living righteously. And I said back then, as we were talking about that, hey, the son of David is on the throne and he's actually leading righteous reform. And what is happening is that the people actually can be trusted in what they're doing. Whereas before, what was stirring around in the hearts of the people was evil. Now they're, they can uh, be trusted to deal honestly. And that's what we're seeing now in the reforms of, of Joab. And so... Um, so in other words, they're finding good work. So he begins this repair on the temple and leading the nation back to Yahweh. And in the process, they actually stumble upon something that is of import. They stumble upon a hidden book there in the temple. What's this? We have a written document here. It says the law of Moses. Mo- Moses. They don't know what to make of it. And so... They, uh, as they're they're doing their repairs and, and making their improvements, they stumble upon the law of Moses. Look at Second Kings twenty two eight um, to thirteen. And Hilkiah the son of the uh, the high priest the, said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law of the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king. Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king read the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam, the son of Shaphan and Echbor the son of Micah and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Boy, that's um, condemning. So what happens when the law of Moses is read uh, to, jo- to Josiah? He is uh, at once in deepest contrition and fear. He tears his clothes at the reading of the word of the Lord and understands that because of this word, the wrath of God is kindled against us and we've got to figure out what to do next. So you need to ask all the people in the know, you need to ask the prophets and everybody to get the priests together and see if you can hear from the Lord to tell us what is about to happen. Because what we've, what we've seen is not good. And so, um, Josiah knows that the document is not, is not good, and so they go and they get an answer from Huldah the prophetess, that the judgments contained in the scroll would come to pass. Look at 22, 14 to 20. This is where we see the inevitable is coming, but there is delay. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahakam uh, and Akbor and Shaphan and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tiv- Tikvah, the su- uh, son of Haras, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in... It uh, <laughs> sounds something out of the Lord of the Rings... Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her, and she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they've forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have read, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back this word to the king. So, um, in some ways it's too late. The Lord's going to judge the place, but Josiah is there in the meantime um, and essentially, uh, as it were, delays the the inevitable. What's coming? Um, And it is due to his repentance that that happens. Josiah gathers the leaders together in Judah and in spite of the fact that this is coming, he sees it as worthwhile to lead them in covenant renewal. Look at 20, 2 Kings 23, 1-3. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in, the, in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And all the people joined in the covenant. There's, um, there's several things that I think are, are really important here. First of all, Josiah gets a word that's probably not incredibly encouraging. Remember, Hezekiah gets told, well, you, you'll live, but in your kids' days, this is going to come to an end. And he says, well, at least there'll be peace in my day. And Josiah doesn't seem to, to do that. Josiah gets word that, well, judgment is coming. You won't see all of it. And what does he do? He leads the nation in reform. He leads the nation in repentance and in a personal commitment to the covenant that, are, that they've made to follow after the Lord. So it's important to note that there is a seriousness to the Word that Josiah understands intuitively. And in his seriousness about the Word of the Lord, what does that require of him? To clean the house of the Lord top to bottom. So if we are, in a New Testament congregation, quote-unquote people of the book, what does that actually mean? It should mean that we're serious about reform. It should mean that we take seriously the words of Scripture. It should mean that we are actual, actually scrupulous about the way we read the Bible, how serious we take it. And then we actually take that to our own personal lives and say, this is what that means here. And this is what that means here. We don't have a temple anymore. That's not where we are in a New Testament congregation. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Lord dwells in you. So to some degree, this becomes very personal to us. That the same kinds of reforms that Josiah enacts on a nation through a temple is the kind of reforms that we care about personally in our own personal lives. But then it should also inform the way we gather together. What kind of people are we? We could be a people who are primarily driven by social gatherings and by this, that, or the other. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. But if we're people of the book, shouldn't a church be driven together by the actual words of Scripture that they're reading and studying together? Isn't that how the church should be formed? There's an, there's an expression, uh, what you win them with is what you win them to. What you win them with is what you win them to. So, If you win them with the study of the Word of God, what have you won them to? God Himself who reveals Himself to them through His Word. If you win them with smoke and lights and lots of other things, what have you won them to? You've won them to an impressive show. We've talked a great deal in here about our worship, about the processes of the church. Our number one agenda as a church, honestly, should be to open up the Word of God and to study it. I I don't know that this is the case in Josiah's day. Maybe it wasn't. I know it's the case in our day, (laughs) and I know this is enumerated tons in the New Testament. There are a lot of times where that will drive people away. And that's going to hurt. Because sometimes it's going to be people that are really close to you. Sometimes it's going to be visitors. Sometimes it's going to be people that you're like, I wish they would stay, but they don't. Because at the end of the day, that's not what they're driven to. That's not what they want. There's an entire church culture out there growing, swelling, I should say, around... Alternative views of church. Different ways of doing it. But if we're people that are driven to his word, none of that should matter. But it should also mean that everything that's in the word, everything that he's written about, everything that he's talked about, we should not only take seriously, but we should seek to implement. God's actually been very detailed in his word about how the church should be run. And that's important. So Josiah, everything that Josiah is doing still has meaning today. Questions? Comments? Go ahead, Charlie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I, I think what she means is the same thing that God said to her, you won't see all the things that I'm going to do to this place. So I think the peace is kind of like, maybe I should say it like a relative peace. Like it's compared to what's about to happen, you'll go to your father's in peace. Yes, he will die in war, but compared to what's about to happen, he's not going to be taken off into exile. I think that's mainly what's been going on. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I think that's the implication there. go ahead Off. yeah yeah. Yeah, uh, Bob, Bob said, uh, uh, maybe all of you couldn't hear, and especially people, anybody listening to a recording can't hear, but um, Bob said, it's a deep kindness of the Lord to prepare the people to be ready to be hauled off into exile, and perhaps we should be the same way if, you know, America should fail swiftly. This is another place where you'll see a, a, a sharp divide between two different kinds of churches. There are churches that are, um, listen, I know of a church prominent, huge budget is, I could only speculate, but probably in the tens of millions of dollars. And you would all know it if I said it. Who sang a hymn four years ago called Make America Great Again. They sang the hymn in church. That, that, was, that was what everyone was singing. So there, there is a sharp divide happening right now of churches that are like, let's save America. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be patriotic and we shouldn't vote and we shouldn't, you know, want what's best for this country. I'm not saying that at all. What we do on Sunday morning is we worship the triune God, who is just as much here in America as he is in Persia and China and all over the world, global. And that's not what we sing, you know. Um... We sing praise to Him, not seeking to save the country. Should that be the case, we're we're reading the book, we're studying the Word of God, and America ain't in it. know. <laughs> 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 yeah. Anything else? All right. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we. We're grateful for your word, and we're grateful for what even we see in Josiah. We're grateful for people that are responsive to it, and we pray that we would be. Um, not that we would want to say, look how good we are, versus look how bad they are, whatever. But we, we recognize that in your people, you change our hearts, you open our eyes, see the truth of your word, And you compel us to come back to it, to study it. And you tell us in your word that you have given us everything there for life and godliness. That you have, in your word, prepared something to teach us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness. That we may be equipped for every good work. And that your word is sufficient for us. We see that in Josiah. We see that in the reforms of the people around him. We see that today in the church. And we pray that no matter what the voices of the culture might say to us, how unfavorable that word might be at any given time in the culture, that we may still be people of the book seeking to live by it. Not self-righteously, but grounded in the truth of Scripture, standing on the foundation of Christ, proclaiming the message boldly with compassion and mercy and grace and love, to a people that are lost and dying. Pray that you would make us that kind of people. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.